When we posted the last two episodes, we never considered many of the listeners would be new and unaware of the information in the prior 15 episodes. We've been locked inside with our heads down since D'Angelo's arrest and didn't think about interest in Exeter beyond our little group of fantastic and loyal podcast followers. Just a reminder that we have photos and links to our Google Maps on our website, 122675.com. Listeners who started with us last year will have a pretty good understanding of our frustration with both Sacramento and TCSO right now. We suffered a real low point last November when TCSO publicly accused Oscar Clifton of killing Jennifer Armour. We knew that it was our fault for making TCSO look bad in the podcast and pressing with Vaughn for the Richmond case to be re-examined. The same investigators were working both cases, and even the inference that Oscar killed Jennifer would have made the Richmond case a slam dunk. We could take their bullying, but their renewed campaign of harassment and humiliation against the Clifton family really crushed us. This episode covers a lot of things that seem to be the baggage of touching the EAR cases. Trolls and misinformation. First, since the Sacramento DA is trying to erase it, we'd like to revisit the work Sergeant Vaughn and Agent McGowan did in 1977 and 1978 to connect the VR and EAR cases. Just like their investigation in the Snelling case that led to the VR shooting his way out of their trap, they based the VR-EAR connection on old-school police work. When they first heard of the EAR in November of 1976, they immediately recognized the VR. He was a totally unique offender. Vaughn says that his scenes were instantly identifiable and did not feel like any other burglary scene Vaughn worked before or after. A lot of it was just that, feel. The VR left an incredibly eerie scene. When they saw the VRMO in Sacramento, they immediately sought reports and information from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department burglary and sex crimes units, as well as from the Sacramento City Police. We're going to briefly recap what happened between VPD and Sacramento Sheriff. On May 18, 1977, ironically four years to the day since D'Angelo had joined Exeter PD, the first news of the possible VREAR connection was published in the Visalia Times Delta under the headline, Police Seeking to Link Rapist to Snelling Slayer. Lieutenant Roy Springmeyer said today, Because of the degree of similarity in the physical descriptions and the methods used, We just can't afford to overlook the possibility that the same person could be responsible for the rapes and the Visalia crimes. Detectives Bill McGowan and Duane Shipley left Visalia early today to meet in Sacramento with investigators probing the rapes in which the attacker has now threatened to kill two persons. Visalia Police Sergeant John Vaughn, who has been heading the Snelling murder investigation, said today he has copies of many of the Sacramento rape investigation reports and the profiles of the crime patterns. They are being closely studied and compared to the information gathered by Visalia officers during the 20-month investigation of the Visalia slain and the nearly four-year probe of the ransacking burglaries, Vaughn said. VPD were still trying to work with Sacramento over a year later, on July 22, 1978, when the Sacramento Union printed their story headlined, Rapist Visalia Cases Tied. Could they be the same man? Absolutely not, says Bill Miller, Sacramento County Sheriff's spokesman. 
In May 1977, Visalia police officials met with the Sheriff's East Area Rapist Task Force and say the department cut off contact with them after comparing both men's methods of operation. There is no connection. We've gone over the whole case, and it isn't the same guy. If it is, he's changed his entire method of operation, says Miller. You've got a guy down there in Visalia who's convinced. At least somebody wants to be convinced. It just isn't there. Most interesting to Visalia are the idiosyncrasies both men share, according to McGowan and Sergeant John Vaughn, who say Visalia has spent more time and money on the ransacker than any other in the city's history. It's useful to note here that the list of MO point matches we published on our website and Facebook page last year, and were referenced in Episode 5 of the recent HLN documentary, are the exact same MO points available to Sacramento Sheriff's Department in 1977. We drew all of those from the original 1974 and 1975 VPD reports. There is no newly discovered information included there. The situation really exploded after the Union article, and it got highly personal. On page one of the Sacramento Bee, July 23, 1978, the headline read, Sheriff Department Attacks Newspaper Rapist Story. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, Saturday, called the Visalia Police Department and the Sacramento Union irresponsible for suggesting the East Area Rapist and a burglar suspected of murder might be the same man. Sheriff spokesman Bill Miller further charged Visalia Police with being unprofessional. It appears to me, he charged, that these investigators in Visalia were looking for publicity, and it's not there. That is really irresponsible, Miller said. He later repeated his charge against the Visalia Police, adding, what they did was unprofessional and irresponsible. He was slightly less critical of the union, saying the reporter reported what she was told by McGowan and Vaughn, but it does seem irresponsible to me to scare thousands of people in Sacramento. You can't say the East Area Rapist is a killer without something more to base it on than what she got from Visalia. Union editor Don Henschel said the newspaper would stand by its story. If Miller and his agency, which has done nothing about the East Area Rapist in two years, want to impugn the integrity of another police agency, that is their problem. We just want to report the news. Vaughn, according to the union, also claimed that both the ransacker and the rapist had the peculiarity of taking things, often items of little value, from one house and leaving them in another. Miller said this is simply not so. That B story was picked up the next day by the Visalia Times Delta and Miller's comments repeated for the local community. Vaughn and McGowan were ordered to drop it with Sacramento, and they did. They never, ever stopped believing the VR was the EAR and continued to work their cases based on that assumption. McGowan worked it in retirement until his death in 2005 and Vaughn to this day. Why is this all important? Why do we care if the VR, EAR, ONS has already been caught? First, he isn't caught in Exeter, and second, because we don't want the true facts and history of this case changed or covered up, and those efforts appear to be ongoing. Go back and re-watch Sacramento's D'Angelo press conference. The Sacramento DA opened with the statement that the answer to the case was always in Sacramento, 
and D'Angelo started his crimes in June of 1976. That's Sacramento's narrative of this case, and they're trying to get the press to follow it. The press release had no mention of D'Angelo's time with Exeter PD. The only reason the sheriff mumbled something about it during his turn at the conference was because he had been confronted with the documentation we had furiously been sending and posting all morning. They were going to ignore it and hope that nobody noticed. Why would they bring it up? Exeter PD had no records of D'Angelo's service and initially even tried to deny having employed him. Why would anyone think of searching the Exeter Sun archives? We understand why Sacramento wants to avoid focus on an important lead that they aggressively refused to investigate for 40 years. But D'Angelo needs to be held accountable for all of his crimes, no matter where that leads or how uncomfortable the answers may be. Seeing Vaughn and McGowan trolled in the 1970s keeps this all in perspective for us. The idiocy of current podcast trolls is hardly new to these cases. Recently, the podcast has been accused of stealing the conclusions of other investigators to form the work in Exeter, so we're going to take the time to tell that background story before we get back to D'Angelo and the Richmond case in episode 18. To be clear, none of what follows in this episode has anything to do with Michelle McNamara, her book, or her team. This is completely unrelated to that work or those people. The same trolls were involved in the public attacks against the podcast's VR information last year. It was an annoying time suck, but it generally remained in the realm of difference of opinion. Who cares? Nobody was flat out accusing the podcast of lying and claiming to have secret proof to back their accusations. Most of the accusations are too vague to confront. Just generally that the podcast has lied to its listeners by withholding or changing critical but unspecified details. There is a lot of missing logic here, since supposedly this applies to the VR episodes, and the VR was the EAR, so obviously those episodes gave the correct facts and story. As stated in the podcast, we only included what were, and still are, considered confirmed VR sightings and attacks. This was determined by reviewing VPD records, newspaper reports, and discussing it all with Sergeant Vaughn and current VPD investigators working on the Snelling homicide. We wanted to give the most accurate information, not just vomit up random details from papers in our possession. For instance, we did not include unrelated prowlers, burglars, or suspects who were checked and cleared, and there were hundreds. There were also two documents from January 1976 that were provided to us as investigatory background in total confidence, we agreed not to include that information in the podcast. Professionally, legally, and morally, we cannot discuss them or post their contents, but they were both key to the ongoing confusion that EAR investigators had about the correct VR description. That information was shared this past year. Some investigators in Sacramento gave the VR another look, and in February, New information linking the VR and EAR was posted by the Sacramento Sheriff. We're not sure why anyone still wants to debate the physical description of the VR as proof he wasn't the EAR. We all know that the VR was the EAR, and we know his name. What a flipping waste of valuable time.
The most specific lie leveled against the podcast is also the most absurd. It involves a profile done for VPD in 1976, with which we expressed some agreement in episode 14. We didn't read it or post it because it gave what we felt was a very 1970s Norman Bates description of the offender, and we didn't want our listeners to pass by a person of interest because he wasn't a loner who lived with an elderly relative. The trolls have stated that the profile concluded that the VR was from Exeter and that the podcast is claiming someone else's work as its own. However, to be fair, there is one mention of Exeter in that profile. From the top of page two, VPD report Vaughn, March 5th, 1976. In the days following the above session, teams of investigators were assigned surrounding cities to personally contact law enforcement agencies and extensively check on prowlers and voyeurs. Agencies contacted were all TCSO substations, Porterville, Lindsay, Exeter, Farmersville, Woodlake, Tulare, Danuba, Hanford, Lemoore, Corcoran, Kingsburg, and inquiries by phone of Fresno Police and Sheriff's Office. We guess the listeners can judge for themselves whether or not that says that the VR was from Exeter. We assume that this is also a dig at VPD and an attempt to discredit Vaughn and McGowan. If they had information in 1976 that the VR was from Exeter and failed to investigate it, that would certainly amount to gross incompetence. None of that ever happened. A critical piece of information obviously unknown by these trolls was that we started working on Exeter in 2012, but did not obtain any of the VPD materials, including that profile, until March of 2016. They also had no way of knowing that we obtained the VPD materials to answer questions asked by former Orange County investigator Larry Poole, who was assisting us with our POI search in Exeter. It's cool that the trolls think that the podcast owns a time machine, but sadly, we don't. Obviously, we'd use it to stop D'Angelo before he started hurting people, not play games with a VPD report. To be beyond clear here, we always thought that the VREARONS was from Exeter, from the first day we looked at the cases. The circumstantial evidence linking Jennifer Armour's murder to the VR activities was obvious, and we believed that the killer meant for us to see it. Donna Richmond was connected to Jennifer by physical type and age. Grove Canal location, straight line distance from Jennifer, day, time, and situation of abduction, and the taking of her pants, undies, and shoes from the murder scene. As we'll discuss more in the next episode, it seemed clear that the killer wanted those connections to be seen and followed. There was something else, and maybe the killer didn't mean to show it, but we knew instantly he was particularly comfortable in Exeter. We could feel it and we were positive. We understand that other people didn't and still can't see it. That's the information our experiences showed us, and we followed it. We never looked for anyone who didn't live in Exeter. We were all in. We started with the normal eliminations, names of people linked to the cases in newspaper stories and Clifton's available appeals documents. We have extensive experience investigating and tracing people, so that part was easy. It's a routine. Recreating people's lives and movements in the 1970s added a layer of difficulty, but the basic process is the same. One of the names we worked was a TCSO officer involved in the Richmond investigation. 
In December 2012, we developed information on his extended family and immediately saw significant connections to critical locations in Exeter, Visalia, Rancho Cordova, Danville, and Goleta. We had heard rumors that the EAR task force was about to make an arrest, so we just worked on it quietly until February of 2016. We cleared dozens of other people during that time, but that family sat in our files, unexplained. By 2016, it seemed like the cases were dead again, so we sent a packet of information on our work to Larry Poole. He replied with a list of hard, critical questions and asked for backing documentation. He was open to every possibility and challenged our thinking and logic. We had developed one possible POI from the family, but we were able to eliminate the entire male line because they shared an extremely rare marker that the EAR did not have. That left four other possibilities. The first possibility was that the EAR was terrorizing the family. We assumed that this would be based on a sense of revenge for a perceived wrong, slight, or disrespect. Given the EAR's obsession with the police and press coverage, we felt his ego would not allow him to ignore the small things. He could have developed a grudge over a neighbor dispute, a disagreement with a co-worker, or anyone he felt had disrespected or rejected him or one of his family members. We had no idea how to work this theory from the victims forward, but we felt the more possible terrorism victims law enforcement could identify and interview, the better chance they had of finding an enemy that they all had in common. It would have been very powerful for the EAR just to know that his targets couldn't sleep well at night in their own homes, living with the fear that they might be attacked at any time. They also had to see their friends and neighbors victimized and left shattered. It occurred to us that law enforcement spent a huge number of man-hours on the VR and EAR cases looking for commonalities between the rape victims. Did they go to the same school, church, or pizza parlor? Did they ski, bowl, or take dance lessons? The offender was smart not to strike the actual Exeter or Vesalia-connected targets. Instead, we thought we'd identified a different pattern, and it seemed like a good lead. The second possibility we considered was that the EAR was intentionally leaving clues pointing to the same family in an attempt to draw law enforcement's attention to them. We wondered if any of these family members had EAR loot planted in their homes or footprints leading to their yards, but law enforcement just dismissed them as helpful neighbors or prowling victims. The night McGowan was shot, the VR's footprints ended at one of the family homes in Visalia. In Danville, the police followed the EAR's footprints to the family's nearby home in two attacks, but just dismissed it as evidence that he'd prowled around the neighboring houses prior to the rapes. In Goleta, the ONS homicide sites were both about five or six blocks from the family patriarch and two blocks from the still-unsolved murder of Eva Taylor in 1974. They weren't just members of a family from Exeter. All of these people actually had lived in Exeter or Visalia before moving to the other locations, They were from Tulare County, and they were all close family, no more distant than one who was a first cousin. We'll talk more about the ERVREARONS's framing behavior in episode 18. The third possible reason we were seeing the Exeter family connections was because the EAR had been drawing an elaborate map, intentionally leaving clues in a game of catch-me-if-you-can with law enforcement. We assumed that the motive for this would be proving to himself and the world that he was smarter than the police who were chasing him and reading about himself in the press. In short, he was drawing a line from Exeter to Goleta and daring the police to notice it. We felt this behavior was consistent with striking couples after Sacramento law enforcement implied they were safe, 
and attacking at the home of the man who spoke up at the community meeting. Those were stupid things to do, but they raised his public profile, increased the terror in the community, and made the Sacramento Sheriff's officers look stupid. We know this is going to go against what Paul Holes and others have publicly said about the case, but not everything that the EAR did was to meet some deep-seated psychological need, or to get back at an ex-fiancé, or his parents, or to serve a twisted kink. It is obvious that most of his MO behaviors were either practical, necessary to control the victims and remain unidentified, or part of the VR-EAR character that he created and wanted law enforcement to see and follow. The 60s and early 70s were a time of infamous serial killers, and they garnered huge press. The Boston Strangler, Richard Speck, the Zodiac, and the Manson family. Ted Bundy was huge news in the summer of 1975, and later when police caught him that fall. The press doesn't give catchy names or even write about most burglars and rapists. Maybe two sentences down at the bottom of a column on page four. To make the front page, you have to be a serial offender, and usually one that the police can't seem to catch. We have no idea how subtle the VR's initial attempts to show a pattern were. We only know when there were enough commonalities for VPD to really notice. Did the VR expect more fame and attention for kidnapping and killing Jennifer Armour? Was the VR spree after her funeral a huge showy attempt to get VPD and press attention? It's truly shocking, but there was not one story about Jennifer after she went missing and only two tiny columns about her being found with, quote, no outward signs of injury, and then as a likely accidental drowning victim. The spree weekend that followed her funeral got a small story in the Visalia Times Delta on page A8 headlined, Visalia Police Probe 15 Thefts in Same Area. Visalia police are investigating 15 burglaries reported over the weekend, most of them in the same general area. Officials said the break-ins involving homes and businesses were in an area surrounded by Tulare, Giddings, Santa Fe, and Paradise Avenues. The losses were basically in cash and small items, leading officers to speculate that the burglaries might be the work of children. That's probably not the story that the VR was expecting. At that point, he wasn't terrorizing the general community. He was making them giggle. The individual ransacking victims were scared and violated, but nobody was interested in talking about their pain yet. Up until that point in Visalia, the seriousness of burglaries or robberies was measured solely in dollars. Some VR victims weren't even calling the police because they couldn't find anything of value missing. They just cleaned up the mess and moved on. It's possible that the VR was finding it harder than he expected to get press attention and a nickname, but that all changed when he killed Claude Snelling. At that point, a normal offender, who had total certainty that VPD was watching for VR activity, would have moved on, changed his MO, or laid low for a while. Instead, the VR went bigger and bolder with his burglaries, added scary phone calls to a victim, and easily evaded all of their stakeouts. Our final thought on the Exeter family connections to the cases was that the EAR's motives were some combination of all of those. We knew his primary objective was watching people in their homes, from the window or their bedsides, and in many cases actually attacking them. 
He liked to be inside people's homes and live in them. He put on lotion in their bathrooms. He ate food from the kitchen. He turned on the TV. He went through their photo albums, drawers, and jewelry. He also liked to unload their guns, use their own shoelaces and linens as bindings, and call them by their names. What mattered most to him was personal, immersive, and forever making himself part of their homes. They could either move or live with his former presence forever lurking throughout their daily lives. Calling them before and after the attacks was also very personal and maintained the idea of being part of their lives beyond the attacks. It was clear that he followed his own press and enjoyed toying with the police. He made sure his crimes were connected and that entire neighborhoods, towns, and cities were paralyzed with fear at the man the police just couldn't catch. We have a lot more to say about framing, but it seemed obvious from the beginning that he wanted others blamed for his crimes. Maybe to confuse the cases, maybe just to play games with the police and see which manufactured leads he could get them to follow. We also thought he might have been attacking near friends, co-workers, or family members, not only for terrorizing and or framing, but to create a plausible reason for being in the area if he was stopped. Oh, my friends from Exeter, the Smiths, live in that house, and I was just walking over for a visit. We hope it's becoming obvious why Sacramento's dismissal of Vesalia early in their investigation was so incredibly helpful to the EAR. Understanding the crimes he had already committed would have given them a lot of clues, and just admitting that he was from Tulare County would have directed them to look for connections and leads when they were interviewing victims and neighbors. Also, they could have ignored some of the MO points that were meant to make sure police connected the crimes and focused on those that were really important to the offender. BPD had learned a lot about how the VR moved through yards, over fences, and in the ditches, and how he hid in hedges and bushes when he was being chased. They knew he monitored the police radio, learned patrol schedules, and used diversions. All of that accumulated knowledge was not only dismissed, but publicly ridiculed. The EAR must have read every word of those stories with a smile. He had law enforcement running around in circles and covering for him at the same time. A lot of people have asked if we feel vindicated that the podcast was correct. The VR was the EAR, and he lived in Exeter in 1974 and 75. The answer is no. Mainly because TCSO are still calling the Richmond and Armour cases unrelated to D'Angelo, and their Facebook post accusing Clifton of killing Jennifer has not been removed. It's still their official position on the cases. Secondly, the information we provided did not sway the investigation and, in fact, led to a backlash and concerted effort to discredit the VR-EAR connection. Paul Holes claimed to have proof that the VR was not the EAR, and it was a waste of investigative time to follow that lead. At least he wasn't stabbing us in the back. He said the same thing directly to us when Larry Poole forwarded our research to him and asked him to review it. Larry Poole had always expressed interest in the MO points between the VR and EAR. And, after vetting our work for several months, he felt that the Exeter connection and that family were an important lead that should be investigated by the EAR task force. Since he was retired in July 2016, he forwarded all of the information we'd been working on together to Paul Holes and asked him to look at it. We made some new Google Maps with all of the critical locations, and Poole forwarded those on to Holes as well. 
When we hadn't heard anything, we checked in with Holes, and he said he'd been too busy to look at the information that Poole had sent, and asked us to send it again, directly, which we did. We were able to get confirmation that the family did not match the EAR's DNA, but again asked Holes to read the information we and Poole had sent. It seemed obvious that interviewing members of that family could lead to clues about who might have been targeting them, or could open the door to finding Exeter or Visalia families near the other attack locations. Holes stopped communicating with us, and when a journalist followed up with him regarding the lead, he simply replied that it wasn't a lead because he had proof that the VR was not the EAR. Since D'Angelo's identification, we've found extensive connections between D'Angelo's life in Exeter and the original family we looked at. Law enforcement in a couple of jurisdictions are currently investigating those, and the connections between D'Angelo and another Exeter family that lived in the same condo complex at the time of the Offerman-Manning homicides and near the site where Jennifer Armour was killed. We have no idea how many more of these might be found. There is no question that the EAR hit all around the house occupied by D'Angelo's ex-fiancée and her husband from 1976 to 79. The same with his wife's parents, her sister, and her brother's homes in Foothills, DeCampo, Citrus Heights, and Rollingwood. Also, his sister's residences in Rancho Cordova. We have all of those locations and dates marked on our map. These are leads that could be critical for discovering how and why D'Angelo attacked where he did, and they could help build a solid circumstantial case around the DNA evidence. An identifiable pattern of nearby relationships, revenge, or framing could be used to show a common scheme or plan and help solidify all of the prosecutions. Such a pattern could also be used to connect D'Angelo to other unsolved homicides, rapes, or missing persons. We had followed up with Holes because Larry Poole encouraged us to work with him and we have tremendous respect for Poole as an investigator in person. We took all of the advice he gave us. However, we're still mystified by Holes's active campaign against the podcast information and the VREAR connection. It was combative and spectacularly wrong. He ignored the Exeter information that both Poole and Vaughn had vetted and believed to be a significant lead. Holes didn't miss Exeter, he had multiple people asking him to look there. We took the information to the podcast when we couldn't get help from the task force. Those are the facts, and we have the receipts. All of the receipts. Make no mistake, the coordinated campaign last year against the VREAR connection had real-life effects on the progress of our efforts to get assistance looking at these Exeter families, POIs, and identifying the VR. It's not like the VR needed the extra help to elude capture. More importantly, these attacks could directly benefit D'Angelo if Tulare County charges him for killing Claude Snelling. Let's start at the end with the ONS homicides. There is DNA connecting D'Angelo to all of the Orange and Ventura County cases. They have D'Angelo's DNA on a bedspread in the Domingo Sanchez murders, but as of now, no DNA in Offerman Manning. Those two cases will have to be tied through M.O. and a common scheme or plan to connect D'Angelo to both. As we discussed above, the connection of Exeter families near the Goleta scenes could be valuable to establish some kind of availability or motive for hitting in those locations and further tie him to the crimes. However, Paul Holes spent the entire last year going on record saying that he had proof that the EAR was not the VR. 
All of his arguments and his position as a task force member can now be used by D'Angelo's defense to argue that any and all mention of Tulare County, D'Angelo's connections there, and any related motive are irrelevant to the Goleta cases and the jury should not hear about them. That brings us back up north to the Majoris, a case that is currently totally circumstantial. San Sacramento disposed of all of the physical evidence in the EAR cases. They cannot connect D'Angelo via DNA to any of the Sacramento cases. They do know the blood type, PGM type, and non-secretor status of their offender, and presumably that matches D'Angelo. The combination of those three indicators will bring it down to a tiny percentage of the white male population. That's good evidence against him for the rapes, which can't be prosecuted. Sacramento will then need to draw a line between their rapes and the Majori case, and that's circumstantial. It will rely on the EAR MO points from that scene. General physical description of the shooter, the fact that he was wearing a mask and armed with a revolver, and the pre-tied shoelace binding found in the yard. The location was a known EAR target area. The shooting also parallels both the Snelling and McGowan cases, with a left-handed shooter carrying a revolver, wearing a mask, shooting witnesses and people chasing him while peeping and kidnapping. We know that D'Angelo lived in Exeter at that time, and again, the MO and the common scheme or plan could really help the circumstantial majority case. However, Sacramento and the task force members spent 40 years aggressively arguing that the VR was not the AR. Again, we would expect the defense counsel to use that to diminish the relevancy of the Vasilia cases and have those cases suppressed. So, how does that impact a possible Snelling prosecution? A lot. To our knowledge, there is no direct physical evidence such as DNA or fingerprints tying D'Angelo to the murder of Claude Snelling. However, there is evidence that the VR killed Snelling the gun stolen during a VR burglary about two weeks prior to the Snelling attack. VPD were able to retrieve spent bullets and casings from that Moroku and match them with the ones that killed Claude Snelling. So, how do we prove that D'Angelo was the VR? There are rumors that he confessed to those crimes, but there is no guarantee that would ever make it into court. His defense attorney already has claimed that he was improperly questioned without an attorney while she waited outside with a court order to see him. Additionally, there will likely be attacks on his arrest warrant and the probable cause that supported it. Without a confession, the only thing that ties D'Angelo to the VR or Snelling cases is the fact that he lived in Exeter at the time and that his DNA was found in EAR and ONS cases. So, here we are back at MO and Common Scheme or Plan to add circumstantial weight to a murder prosecution, but now we need to work backwards. D'Angelo was the ONS and Contra Costa EAR according to DNA. Very likely the Sacramento EAR based on blood type, PGM, and secretor status, and the early EAR attacks look very much like the Snelling attack. Additionally, the Snelling and McGowan shootings look like the Maggiore and Rodney Miller shootings. Now, sever all of that from the Snelling case, and imagine all you have is the fact that D'Angelo lived in Exeter. Confession suppressed, ERMO suppressed as more prejudicial than relevant, and you have a very difficult case to sell to a jury. Vaughn was never able to understand the supposed harm in investigating the VR as an EAR lead. The very worst thing that could have happened is that resources would have been poured in. 
the killer of Claude Snelling and Jennifer Armour would have been caught, and so what if ultimately didn't turn out to be the EAR-ONS? The potential benefit for all of the cases was huge, and there was no downside. A man in Vesalia kidnapped two girls, killed one of them, and killed the father of the other. Those families deserved justice, and that man needed to be caught. Those cases were just as worthy of attention and resources as any of the other homicides. Our biggest question over the last year was not why the VR-EAR connection was ignored, but why was there such a long-standing and seemingly endless attack against the very possibility and ongoing attempts to discredit every single person who tried to investigate the cases together? This obviously started with the newspaper stories in 1978 and continued right on into 2018. Current and former task force members gave D'Angelo years of freedom and possibly harmed future prosecutions. And for what? Nothing. To avoid working with VPD, to protect their egos after they failed to see the connection for themselves, to cover past mistakes? Shelby and Holes could have just said, I don't see it, but it could be a lead that someone wants to follow. But they didn't. Shelby wrote an entire anti-VR EAR chapter in his book, and Holes not only peppered his anti-VR arguments into pro-board discussions and podcast appearances, but we've been told by journalists and TV producers that he warned them away from including the VR information in their EAR ONS coverage. Even several people who heard the podcast and had questions eventually backed off. Why would Hull say he was positive and that he had proof if he didn't? We'll never understand the motives here. The only person who benefited was D'Angelo. Unfortunately, it appears that history is repeating and attempts are being made to prevent any investigation into D'Angelo in the Exeter cases. The trolls were again publicly blasting the facts in the podcast and claiming to be more knowledgeable about not only the VR, but now the Richmond case and Clifton's 1965 case as well. We expected anger and attacks for saying the VR was the EAR, but we did not see the pro-D'Angelo crusade against Clifton coming. We shouldn't be surprised that D'Angelo already has groupies defending him, but we're not sure why the podcast needs to be dragged into that mess. None of the disinformation campaigns against the podcast are ever supported by facts or documentation. We can't tell if this behavior is an uninformed examination of the evidence or gaslighting, the last refuge of debaters who have no substantive factual counterargument. Tell enough lies and people will believe some of them must be true. The assertion that Clifton's ghost has been filing appeals in the five years since his death and that the ghost appeals court ruled against him was almost funny. If these murder cases weren't so horrific, we might laugh. If you want an accurate list and description of the ER, VR, or Richmond information, please look at the details on the podcast maps. No facts have been changed, omitted, or embellished. Some of the homeowners' names and street numbers are not visible, but the locations are exact. Hopefully, rather than doing more of D'Angelo's work for him and assisting him in evading responsibility for the Exeter homicides, the trolls will just ignore the Richmond and Armour cases. If someone has evidence of Clifton's guilt in either Exeter homicide, bring it forward. In fact, we said that directly to TCSO cold case investigators. We're still waiting. However, using vague opinion, 
theory, lies, and guessing to manufacture a false controversy is not an evidentiary counter-argument, no matter how great it might be for generating book sales. Any journalist writing about an active criminal case should take time and conduct double-sourced primary research on the facts before rushing to publication. That doesn't mean just borrowing information and documents from someone else's book, the internet, or our Facebook page, website, maps, and podcast. That means doing their own work. At a bare minimum, that would include obtaining copies of the original police and lab reports, witness statements, private investigator reports and interviews, defense notes, grand jury, trial and appeals hearing transcripts, appeals briefs, and conducting in-person interviews. None of the trolls are Oscar Clifton, and they haven't reviewed the boxes of case files and primary sources in Tulare County. They aren't experts on the Richmond homicide, regardless of what Paul Holes, Richard Shelby, TCSO, a ghost judge, or anyone else tells them. The podcast's original work is covered by copyright and Writers Guild registration, and all documents controlled by the Clifton estate are used with permission, solely for the non-commercial purpose of presenting the facts to the public. Nobody involved with the podcast has ever been compensated one penny for work on these cases. We've spent thousands of hours, driven thousands of miles, and paid for all of the case and podcast expenses out of our own pockets. We've done it all so there would be an accurate record of the facts. We believe in truth and hopefully, someday, justice.